I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Parable of the landowner uh, who goes out into the marketplace and uh, collects workers at various times uh, throughout the day and uh, shockingly uh, pays them all uh, the same amount of money. Uh, What is the Lord getting at here? Matthew chapter 20, beginning at the first verse. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning uh, to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into his vineyard. And going out uh, about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those uh, hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with uh, what belongs to me? Or do you... Begrudge my generosity. So the last will be first, and the first last. The Holy Spirit, if you are a believer in Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit has uh, drawn you um, into a relationship with Jesus. And as time goes by, you continue to be amazed at the grace and the mercy of the Lord. Even so, at this time, you do not fully grasp the goodness and the mercy of God. And you won't, deep down, fully grasp the goodness and generosity of God until you see Jesus face to face and you will be like Him for you will see Him as He is. 
Not only are you indwelt by the Spirit, enabled to see the glory of Jesus, but you also live in the backwash of your first parents' rebellion. They, at one point, lived comfortably before the gaze of God, until they no longer did. And their sin drove them into hiding. And so here you are, rescued by grace, but you, too, deal with, a na- with nagging suspicions about the goodness of God. In our hearts, perhaps back in the, in the, in the recesses of our mind, there are questions that we have. There are suspicions that we have. I'm not doing enough for God. I don't measure up. We instinctively uh, defend our record. We instinctively uh, puff up our performance in the eyes of other people. And so this is the dilemma in which we live. We have Holy Spirit renewed minds and we are drawn up into grace. And yet we live in this fallen flesh and we don't trust grace, not fully. In many respects, we prefer our own righteousness to the righteousness that is given to us as a gift by Jesus. In many respects, we prefer to have our own performance shine and appear to be superior to the people around us rather than simply resting as children in the performance of Jesus Christ with that grace that he gives to us. There is, in the several chapters around chapter 20 here in Matthew, there is a thread that runs through them. And, and, and that is, uh, it's reflecting the fact that we all have a legal heart, more than perhaps we would like to admit. We have a legal heart. And there is a question that recurs in various ways as we look at these chapters. Um, and the question is this, and I'm borrowing these thoughts from uh, Dane Ortland and uh, some perspectives that in a, in a recent book that he, that he wrote. Um, but in a number of different ways, people are asking this question. What is the least that I need to do for God? What's the least I need to do? What do I need to do to get by? We think of, of Peter, for example, in Matthew 18. How many times do I have to forgive my brother when he sins against me? There's got to be a limit here. Let's talk limits. How about seven? That would be heroic. Peter is asking the question, how much do I need to do to get by? The Pharisee uh, in chapter 19 who is quibbling about the conditions for a divorce. What is the least that I can do with respect to marriage? What can I get away with? Um, Can I divorce my wife, or can one divorce his wife, for no cause whatsoever? Can we do that? The rich young man, uh, later on in chapter 19, what good deed must I do in, in order to get into heaven? 
Um, they're all looking, all three of them are looking for a low bar of obedience. What is the least that I need to do in order to be received into heaven, in order to make God happy? And then we come to this parable here. It is a parable that is stunning to us in, in two primary respects. One is the, 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 the extravagant, what, what, what Calvin w- would call the, the gratuitous grace and generosity of God. The, the generous spirit of God represented in the landowner. But the other thing that we pick up on is there is an, a natural suspicion that God is somehow holding out on us, that we're not getting what we fully deserve. There's his astounding generosity, and there is our native suspicion to it, and we can miss it. I, I want you to be thinking about three uh, questions as we consider uh, this text uh, this evening. And, and really three requests that I have for you in your prayers. And the first one is this, that you would ask the Spirit to show you the Father's generosity. That's the first thing I want you to take away. Ask the Spirit to show you the Father's generosity. Secondly, to ask the Spirit to free you of the death grip of comparisons. To free you from comparisons. And then thirdly, ask the Spirit for obedience that comes from the heart. Not just obedience. Obedience that is birthed out of a sincere, a sincere faith out of your heart. First of all then, ask the Spirit to show you the Father's generosity. The landowner here is, uh, is of course, hiring help uh, for his vineyard. And he is exercising what you might call as a solid business practice. He is up first of a first thing in the morning. Uh, he meets a number of people at six o'clock and he, he hires them on the spot uh, to work for a full day. That would be a, that would be a 12 hour day, 12 hours. And, and, uh, and, and he would give them a full day's pay of a denarius that would feed the family uh, well uh, in, uh, from, from that day's wage. So far, so good. But uh, at nine o'clock, he goes back out and, uh, and he hires a few round. The second round hires, we might call them. Again, there are people that are just standing around and he asks why they're doing so and he hires them. And, and, and we can get that. They're still putting in a nine hour work day, which is more than some of us have worked. Uh, and so, and so we're, we're, we're okay then, at, but we get very suspicious around midday, where he goes at noon, and then again at, at three o'clock, and he, he, these midday hires seem very strange to us. These people aren't looking for work, but he's finding them, and, and he is hiring them. Uh, this is, according to uh, Ken Bailey, uh, very strange behavior uh, in the first place. Uh, Ken Bailey was uh, one who was teaching uh, in the Middle East for 60 years and got to know the mindset that, that even, even uh, in modern times would have also been reflective of the ancient times. Landowners in the Middle East are known traditionally to be gentlemen farmers. 
They hire others to work the land and appoint a foreman or a steward to manage the estate. A traditional landover, landowner uh, may give his steward careful instructions in the morning and then ask for a report at the end of the day. But to make the trek in person from the farm to the market and back five times in a single day is simply unheard of. That is the steward's job. Now let's go back to that five o'clock hire. The text says that he actually went to the marketplace at five five o'clock or or at the 11 o'clock hour. He left at five o'clock. It may have taken 10 minutes or so to get to the to the uh, the marketplace. He, he cuts a deal with the person. Uh, you come and work the rest of the day and uh, I'll, I'll give you what is right. And, and then they would have returned. Uh, they would have returned to the, the vineyard and maybe have gotten 35 minutes of labor in. This is this is this is strange and unreasonable kind of behavior. And what's even more shocking, of course, is when they line up for pay at the end of the day and and, uh, he instructs the manager to pay those hired last first. And they get their their denarius as well, of course. And and then each of the others are, 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 are paid as well. The one at three, the one at noon, the one at nine. And by this time, uh, the ones who were first hired, who, who signed on for a denarius, are seething with resentment. You have made these slackers equal to us. Now, what does this tell us about the kind of, of, of boss? Of, that, what, what is this land? What is motivating this landlord? First of all, and maybe just put a sharp point on this, he didn't need the workers. He didn't need the workers. The workers needed him. And that's what was motivating him. He replied to one of them, verse 13, Friend, I'm doing, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for... A denarius. Now, take what belongs to you. I chose to give the same amount to the last worker as I did to you. Paul Turnier, um, often described as the best-known uh, Christian physician of the 20th century, I suspect I would have thought that to be uh, to be uh, Martin Lloyd Jones. But Paul Turnier, the Swiss physician, made this comment: "It is not guilt." That is the obstacle to grace. The final and largest uh, obstacle to grace is not guilt. It is the repression of guilt. It is self-justification. It is self-righteousness. That's the obstacle to grace. And that's what the landowner is uncovering. Think Think about the first hired... Think about the rich young man and think about Peter, two of the other stories that we mentioned earlier. In every case, grace was perceived to be transactional. 
Listen to the way each one spoke. I slaved all day for you, first hired. All these things I have kept, rich young man. And Peter himself, well, we've left everything for you, Jesus. Certainly we've got more coming. You see, this is grace that is not really grace in their minds. It is obedience that is not really obedience. The the Master is telling us in this beautiful story uh, that, uh, that free grace is not connected to how much or how little you do, that you cannot merit the Father's generosity. So what is our God like? He is a generous God who gives you what you need. A generous God who gives freely what you need, not what you deserve. You see, He sent His Son to work for you uh, so that you could get to pay. The last, the last will be first. Pray. Spirit of God, um, let me get the heart of the Father. Let me see that compassion, that generosity. The second thing is to ask the Spirit to give you freedom from comparisons, freedom from the smug assessment that you often make of your own virtue. Listen to this this statement. Uh, We've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. We're the ones who have suffered for you. We deserve more. Everyone else is a slacker. But we have served you with diligence. Uh, Bailey again makes this comment. The grouchy workers aren't grouchy because they're underpaid. (laughs) They're not underpaid. They are grouchy because they see others as overpaid. (laughs) Getting what they don't deserve because I deserved it. I earned it. This morning uh, in our service, we looked at Matthew chapter 7, the log and the speck. And um, what can we tell from this captivating little story from Jesus? What does Jesus know about us? What does Jesus know about you? What does Jesus know about me? We have an inclination, a propensity, an instinctive attitude, behavior of of being fascinated with the specks in other people's eyes. What have they done? How am I superior? I can point out the things that they're doing wrong. And he also is aware that it is our own spiritual blindness that makes us so fascinated with the other person's speck because we're, we're walking around with this, a two by eight. We'll call it a 12 foot two by eight perched on our nose and assuming that we have, we have excellent vision even with that obstructed view. He knows what we're like. He knows that that's, that's not an unusual kind of perspective. It is actually typical of us. Our impulse is to judge others. And Jesus is putting in very picturesque language, he's saying, you judge yourselves first. And it is a very big thing to admit that there is at least 
a smidgen of self-righteousness in your heart. That is a big thing to come to see. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that Pharisee over there, which turns us into one immediately. How convenient it is to compare ourselves to other sinners and not to the holy God. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, it is morality, uh, not immorality, that is the greatest enemy of Christianity. It is our damnable righteousness, as it's put by another writer. We have a smug assessment of our own virtue. Somehow or other, there is a model laid out for us here to have in our hearts the joy and amazement of the last hired. It is, it is a, a sense, and, and the Spirit can do this. It is the sense that the Spirit gives us that the one thing that qualifies you for the kingdom is knowing that you are not qualified. The one thing that qualifies you is to realize that you're not There is freedom uh, in giving up that nervous perfectionism that can drive us, that drive for approval, that drive to be perceived as competent and successful. And no one needs, you have no one you need to impress. Uh, There is no need to compare yourself with anyone else because the first are made last and the last are made first. The freedom of being of being set free from being from making comparisons between yourself and others pray the spirit would give you that freshness that joy and that amazement of being among those last hired and finally then ask the spirit for the obedience for obedience that comes from the heart I, I, the first hired here, the first hired, the ones who have put in the longest day, uh, resemble in many respects the older brother of the parable of the two sons. Uh, in many respects, they are probably describing the same people, I'm sure. And that is those who, the Pharisees, the ones who are, are morally upright, uh, the ones who uh, are focusing on their long record of obedience as both the first hired and the older brother did before his father. These are people who are impressed with themselves. They're always comparing themselves to others. And for them, at every time, at every turn, their obedience was mercenary and it was transactional and it's always angling for credit, always angling for credit. Uh, I have slaved all of these years for you. Not, I've been happy to be in your household and I have delighted to honor you. No, I have slaved for you my entire life. You have not been gracious to me. No, no banquet. I've gotten slave wages. This is the attitude of grudging obedience that many, even many believers display. For some, they look at the gospel as that which gets them started. That's what gets them started on their Christian life. I know I'm saved by grace, 
But then it's up to me to generate a life of respectable discipleship. And so I study my Bible, I, I learn to, to witness, I work on my prayers. If you're like me, you get your prayer cards and you run through them every week and you're very diligent and obedient in that respect. You're tithing, you're memorizing. Um, for these people, though, the Sabbath is often not seen as a gift so much as a sacrifice. I've also got to give up this day for God. You see what's going on? There is an attitude, as Paul describes in the book of Galatians, there is, they are sanctified by self-effort, and it is characterized by this question. Paul says to these individuals, what has happened to all your joy? You're doing a lot of good things, but what has happened to your joy? And then he actually puts a title on it in, on chapter, in chapter 3 of Galatians, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal? Are you now trying to reach the status of a sanctified person by human effort or by the flesh? Those are the ones who have a dutiful obedience, but without the joy of the Lord. The last hired never lose their amazement at grace. The gospel oxygen keeps you invigorated. This is what Herman Bobbing says. The gospel is the food of faith and must be known to be nourishment. Not just that it is nourishment, it must be known to be nourishment. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 4, to the one who does not work. Think of the last hired. To the one who does not work work, not at all, not for his keep, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Paul himself never outgrew the feeling of being the last hired. He never lost sight of the fact that he was a sinner saved only by grace. He saw himself with clarity so that he knew that he was like those last hired. Dear brothers and sisters, you have Jesus. You have all you need in him. All he has is yours already. He is your food and drink. Jesus himself puts it this way in John's Gospel. He tells us these things so that his joy may be in us and your joy may be full. Jesus is, is positioning us to be those who see themselves as the last hired and still get the full payment. This is the same thing again that Paul describes for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.14, that the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ constrains us. You see, this is, this is wholehearted, unified soul obedience. The love of Jesus, the love of Jesus for me, constrains my obedience. It controls my obedience. The J.B. Phillips uh, translation puts it this way. 
the spring of our actions is the love of Christ. The spring of our actions. That which, that's what gets us, out in the, uh, gets us out of bed in the morning. For joy to serve the Lord. To, to look forward to the opportunity. He's going to meet with me today. He's going to satisfy my soul and give me what I need to live for His glory. I know that's the kind of God He is. And I can expect Him to give me messages from the Spirit throughout this day that remind me of Jesus, that remind me of the Scriptures who speak of the love and the mercy of Christ. The New English Bible translates that same phrase from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this way, the love of Christ leaves us no choice. That is compulsion. That is being filled with a a passion for faithfulness and obedience. You are never going to be satisfied with doing the least that you can for God. For your food too will be to do the will of your Father who is in heaven. Ask the Spirit for obedience from the heart. Ask the Spirit to free you from comparisons. Ask the Spirit to display in the eyes of your heart the sweet generosity of your Father. Let's pray. Father, in this in this little story this afternoon, um, we have ventured into a strange territory where we see your generosity in such vivid terms and we are called up, called up short. And say we are, are like the last hired more than we would like to admit. And so we're praying for this sense, Lord, that what uh, motivates you to save us is not what we can do for you, but because you love. And pray that each one of us here would see implications of this for our lives with fellow believers, our lives with those in our households, that we would be men and women and boys and girls who show remarkable mercy compassion, generosity, even as it has been shown to us. For it is in the name of the Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen.